I'm Diane Atwood, and you are listening to the Catching Your Memories podcast. I met Luann Cameron a few years before COVID hit. We served on a committee together, and I was struck by all the great ideas she came up with during a brainstorming session, and also by her positive can-do attitude. Now, maybe Luann was born with that attitude. Maybe she had to cultivate it. Probably a little bit of both. It's gotten her through some difficult days and motivated her to write a book to help people navigate their own life challenges and be happy and productive. Luann Cameron is today's guest on the Catching Your Memories podcast. She's going to tell us about the strategies she uses that have helped her get through her challenges, including some serious health issues. She'll also tell us about her book, The 110 Philosophy. And yes, there is a story behind the title. Hello, Luann, and welcome to Catching Your Memories. So how are you doing today? Very well. Thanks for having me. Thank you for your interest. Pretty excited. Well, I'm glad. I'm excited, too, because you have a lot of interesting things to share with us. And I would like to start with your book, actually, the title of your book, The 110 Philosophy, because that number 110 has a great deal of significance for you, doesn't it? Just a little. (laughs) Yeah, it, It definitely did evolve. It really started with 100 until my mom put me up to the challenge and uh, I developed the 110 and the 110 at a pivotal point in my life just stuck. And I've had the goal, really the vision versus goal, because there's a difference between a goal and a vision. I had the vision to live to 100 since I was five years old. And that vision for my life as a five-year-old was so simple. And I've lived that vision and it's helped pull me through. The power behind the 110, I have the uh, fortune to have some ancestors that have lived to 103. And my mom was educating me this. And I figured they didn't even try. And I've been trying since I was five with this vision. So I added a lucky seven years and 110 at a point that I was looking for a, a name for my company as I was caught in the recession to start a consulting company. And uh, so 110 really stuck because it resonated with my vision. And I knew how important it was to always be giving 110% and showing up. And that's how it evolved. Okay. But the 100 at five years old, I mean, who thinks ahead like that at five years old? (laughs) I did. (laughs) You did. The impact in moments in your life that uh, be of huge significance and not even realizing it at that particular moment in time. At that particular moment in time, I had no idea that it was going to be life-defining for me. But my grandmother, who I just absolutely admired beyond, um, blessed to have such a grandmother, she was a nurse and she was very optimistic and helpful. And she and my grandfather did nursing homes. They, they founded and grew nursing homes. That was their world. So as a child, I was surrounded by elderly people, especially my summers. I would go there in the summertime. They lived in Pennsylvania. And I would take these amazing trips to go see my grandmother, who was about, I lived in Vermont, born and raised, uh, 10 hours away. So it was always a big event to see her. On one of these visits, I was five years old, and she made this big deal about me being introduced to this 100-year-old man. I wasn't supposed to touch him. I was supposed to be quiet. I was just supposed to listen. So we walk in and I remember it just like yesterday. I looked at him and he was blind. So it was important for him to be able to touch me, but I wasn't given permission to touch him. 
because my grandmother lectured me to say, can't touch him. Blah, blah, blah. So when he went to go reach to touch me, I looked up to my grandmother distinctly to say, is it okay? And she's like, yes, Luanne. Hmm. <laughs> my nickname, hated it. So anyway, he touched me, our hands touched. And it was literally that moment when I went out to the parking lot, because we weren't there a minute or two, went out to the parking lot. And I, I remember standing there distinctly thinking, I'm going to live to a hundred years old. And boom, just like that, it went off to play. And then in the course of, you know, the next few years, I've always questioned sort of who's happy. If I was going to live to a hundred like that man, well, first of all, I didn't want to be laying in the bed at a hundred. And so I started to really articulate in my head what, what that vision was going to look like for me when I was a hundred. So I know exactly what I'm going to look like when I'm hundred. Now, remember, it's a vision. It's about having a vision where I'm going. And if I know where I'm going, then I can make better decisions today that make me happy for the long term and, and really evaluating those decisions that I make to make sure that they're lining up with this vision of where I'm going. So that's how I was born. Sort of has work. <laughs> it's kept me alive. I imagine it is work sometimes to be happy, yeah. but you have strategies, which we're going to talk about. I would like to stay in your childhood a bit. You had a difficult childhood, part of your childhood. People can read the details if they get your book. You had a pretty idyllic childhood up until about age 10, and then from 10 until you left home to go to college. It was challenging for you. But you had this vision in your head. Is that what helped you to get through it? Yeah, to be a warrior. You know, I was blessed to have wonderful parents. I really was, to have a foundation of wonderful parents who made some bad decisions. But fortunately, I, I did have a wonderful childhood up to age 10, and I've done a lot of evaluation of childhood in the years of development, and an uh, important component I do like to share with as many people of my learnings and evaluating childhood experiences who have been through challenges. Ages 1 to 11, 70% of your value system is set. From 11 to 23, the remaining 30% is developed. So... That's important to understand as trauma has occurred to many childhoods and knowing where you are in that development is critical and understanding on how to get through that. So back to my childhood of age 10 to 18, so I went off to college. Yes, they were definitely some challenging years. I knew when I was in a bad situation for about 18 to 20 months, and again, some of the details are in the book, but I, the book is not about trauma. It's about the tools to get through it. I remember instinctually that something was wrong and I wasn't happy. It's tough when you're that age because your parents are your idols and your parents are everything. And when they've made some bad decisions, it's hard to decipher. Are they bad decisions? Is this not the way life should be? And I believe I just trusted my intuition compared to my peers and their experiences with family, that my experience wasn't lining up. And I was blessed to have a supportive father who helped me get out of that situation. I can't necessarily say I am able to articulate it as I've been now to be able to look back at understanding what happened when I was going through it. I think it was just always knowing that I wanted to be happy. It was really important for me to be happy if I was going to live until 100 years old. Now I clearly have that formulated in my mind, the power behind it, as I've been leading people for 32 years now. And I have learned through others that 
my way of thinking with this vision is helpful for others and powerful for others. These childhood experiences that you had, up until that point, you may have had the vision of living to be 100, but I can't imagine that you had the level of discipline that you certainly have now. But it was these experiences that you had in later childhood, perhaps, that led you to have a pretty strict, the right word, goal-oriented approach to life and to decide, I'm going to make sure that when I get married and have a family, it's not going to go down the same path? Well, I was very disciplined in my mind at a very young age because of the situation that I was placed in, starting between uh, 11 and 13. Very, very disciplined. But my parents were divorced, and the man uh, my mom married was my dad's best friend, who was a pedophile. He was uh, incredibly disciplined, and he placed that discipline in every every story, every downside has an upside. The upside to my situation, he was incredibly disciplined, and he taught me discipline. The things that he would have me do really helped with that discipline. So that's the upside to the situation. It did, it did teach me discipline. The upside of being introduced to a 100-year-old man at five years old taught me the power of vision. And you put discipline, a little bit of structure in there, a couple goals and a vision, and man, life can happen. So let's talk about marriage. Okay, let's talk about that one for a little bit, because I was definitely different, and I didn't realize it until I was about 42. I thought everybody dated with a mission and a vision to be married. Uh, if you're going to date, dating, the reason why you date, in my perspective, okay, was to get married. If after two dates, you know you could never live with this guy till you're 100 years old, why would you continue the relationship? So I remember uh, vividly having these very candid conversations with what I was like. And I don't know when you start dating when you're what, 15, right? I remember having these couple dates and I would tell the guy, well, listen, we're, we're not going to ever get married. So let's just have fun and be friends. And I would remember them looking at me like, what are you talking about? I'm like, well, I'm not going to marry you. And they're like, it's like, of course, we're not going to get married. But that's how I was thinking. And I just thought everybody thought that way until I had this candid conversation. Literally when I was like 42, my girlfriend was having a baby at 42 and we got chit-chatting about life and kids in high school. And she goes, well, we had no one things like that. And I'm like, what do you mean no one things like that? Why, why else are you dating? So yeah, I've had this disciplined and structured with a vision, right? Because I was like, there's no way I, I wanted to go into a relationship if I didn't think I could make it the long haul because it was devastating for me that my parents didn't make it the long haul. And my parents, they were the envy of the neighborhood. That's what was so mind blowing for me. Everybody envied my family. And so for my family to have this major disaster, I'm like, if this is gonna happen to me, and my parents were wonderful parents, they made bad decisions. If this is gonna happen to me, can you imagine other people, right? So I was always evaluating that. So marriage is a really good example of how it started at a very young age, but then I didn't realize I was thinking any differently than anybody else. And I just celebrated 35 years. I was so. going to say, so the man you married, he passed muster. Yeah, after about, I don't know how many men. I think it's very important. I did not sleep around. It goes back to your value system. And I'm being very true to yourself in my business relationships and coaching individuals in my life. All you have is your reputation. You're first exposed to that in high school. Right. And the power about people, you know, losing their reputation. And and so fresh starts are important. 
every year going from ninth grade, 10th grade, 11th grade was a fresh start, new perspective. I jumped schools a couple times because of the divorce. And what I learned is that when I went into this one school system, I didn't look like anybody else. I didn't smell like anybody else. We were that family, the hillbilly family for lack of a better uh, detail. We were the hillbilly family and I was going into the school system. Oh, I was picked on and I had no friends. All I had as a goat is a friend and oh, my goat was my everything. You're talking about the family you had after your mother remarried. Yeah, during that transition. Okay. Right. Yeah, before I got out. So after that school year, entering into the school year and then by the end of the year, I had a ton of friends. And what I learned is it doesn't matter what you wear. It doesn't matter how you smell. It matters who you are. And to learn that, you know, that would have been seventh grade at those really mucky. Those are just fun years for everybody, right? Seventh, eighth, ninth grade. So in seventh grade, to learn that was really powerful and profound, fortunately. And then the following year, I went back into my old school system, but as a whole new being. Well, so you got married. You're still married. No marriage is perfect in terms of, you You know, you have arguments and things, but I would imagine with your self-discipline and your vision that you know how to approach those situations when you're not seeing eye to eye, right? I do. Sounds pretty healthy to me. You have two children. You now have a grandchild? Granddaughter. She's turning three on Saturday on the 10th. What's your grandmother's name? Grandma Lou. Grandma Lou. Yeah, Grandma Lou, because my grandma was grandma's. I don't know if you want this or not, but I never wanted to be a mother. Really, I always wanted to be a grandma. And I knew you had to be a mother before you got to the grandma stage. It's definitely a challenge having her in Toronto. But again, I have goals around that. Uh, We don't go any longer than a quarter. So every three months is the goal. And pretty much is every other month I get to see her. And that's profound with a pandemic. So we really were pretty disciplined through that. We went up and quarantined, et cetera, when we could. Now, I can relate to um, not wanting to be a mother just from, for me, the standpoint of, I don't know if I could be a good mother or the kind of mother that I think I ought to be. But it turned out okay, right? It did. It did. I love being a mother. I just didn't go into it with that. I was just very, very nervous to be because I had such high expectations and I don't know if I could be the mother that I really wanted to be. And you're right. That that definitely was a component. I could have been pregnant forever. I love being pregnant. But having a baby was like, does he really have to come out? He could just hang out in there. (laughs) Like, no, no, it's got to (laughs) happen. Well, while raising your family, you also felt that having a career was important. I did. So that's a challenge that has to be met, raising a family, having a career. Are you still in the same career today that you started out in? Leadership. I am. So let's take a moment on that one right there, because this is really a a powerful one, because I love being a mother. And I think the hardest thing for a career woman or a mom to have to do is to give her baby to daycare, to another person to raise it might have been a little bit easier for me because I knew in my heart in dissecting my childhood and my mom's happiness in making some bad decisions. Why wasn't she truly happy? What happened? And I believe a component of it, she was incredibly smart, smart lady. And her life got tangled up, ironically, when she got her college education and she started to hold a good, solid job. 
And so what I learned is I was always going to be a career woman. I was always going to work. So I knew that going into it, work helps me with purpose. It helps me and allows me an opportunity to help others. I've learned that again, way before the muck of my life, between the years of five and 10, I learned the power of helping others. I saw it through my grandmother's eyes. I saw the power that it gave her with an internal happiness of helping others. When she, as a nurse, would go to those old ladies and old men and help them, how it made her feel and how it made them feel. So I really analyzed that. When I was a little girl, my grandmother taught me how to crochet and I would make these crochet bookworms. This is a fun little story on how I learned the power of helping others before muck happened and it's a little worm at the end and it falls out the book and then it's a chain if you know anything about crocheting it's a chain and a little round thing at the bottom and it's a bookmarker right they take about i don't know five minutes i always had an entrepreneurial way of thinking i was like oh how could i make money that's sort of deep rooted too but that's for a different day or a different question and i thought well i could make a quarter off of these bookworms so there was a assisted living facility a block away. I remember riding my bike across the street and going and knocking on the doors and trying to sell my bookworms. There was a lady there who had polio and she was in a wheelchair and I was her light and she would always buy a bookworm and then she just started giving me cookies so I would come back once a week to visit her. And what I learned from that is just the power of helping her and how good it made me feel that I was helping her. That's been sort of my passion in life. I just want to help people. My whole career started that way. So in your career, you've always been in leadership positions. My degree is in the study of having fun, therapeutic recreation. So again, <laughs> uh, there's a story too, how I came up with that degree, but that that is the BS degree I have from University of Southern Maine. Thank you very much, University of Southern Maine. So my first job, uh, I had to do my senior year. I had to do an, uh, like an internship. So I got a job at a nursing home and I was their activity director. And what I learned very quickly is as an activity director, the challenge with it is once you're an activity director and you set up the whole program and you have all these volunteers coming in to do your job, you're done. You know, it, it, it had a ceiling to it. And my appetite was enticed when I helped out a friend for market research. And I went to downtown Portland, went on Exchange Street. She had a fancy office and I walked in there and I was, and, and it was at night. She allowed me to do it because I had to make all these cold calls at night, which I hated. Everybody hung up on you. Even back then, this was 35 years ago. And I saw the office. I saw the glitz. I was like, oh, this is what I'm missing because I was evaluating. Wait a minute. Why am the, the important component to the principles in my life and guiding principles of why wasn't I happy? So I had a very strong purpose in life of helping others and God is important to me. And uh, so a connection there to my inner purpose. Two, taking care of myself. Three, nurturing my relationship, my significant other, my to-be. I was dating somebody of significance that it was going to be profound in my life. And then four, my relationship with my family and his family were solid. Five was the career. This is probably where it was really pivotal that I really figured out that that's why I'm not happy because my career was off track. I, I wasn't getting fulfilled at work. I was no longer challenged. I wasn't learning, but I walked into that marketing research firm and I was like, oh, 
this is it. So that's what led me to get a more powerful career. So I seeked out uh, to be in direct alignment with my purpose, which is helping others. And I wanted to help people who had disabilities go back to work because my mom's husband had a daughter who was profoundly, severely disabled. She had a profound impact on my life at a very young age. So that's how I started at Unum. I was in the disability claims, bottom line. And then I sort of tapped to lead people. I transitioned into leadership from going from an individual contributor of helping my clients with disabilities get back to a productive life. When I started leading people, I was like, oh, wait a minute. I am not going to be touching my customers as much, right? I'm going to be touching them through the leadership. And that was a transition. And then I realized, well, wait a minute, my job, and this is what's had the profound impact on really helping at a leadership level in small businesses, et cetera, how to help an individual be their best. And when I do that and help people bring out the best in themselves, then what I found is I'm a good leader. But then 2008 came along and there was a recession and you were no longer employed. That was fun. <laughs> you landed on your feet, but you other challenges presented themselves to you at that time, correct? Right. And were you working at Unum when the recession hit? No. I was with Unum for 12 years, and then I started startup operations. My first startup operation really was with Unum, uh, where I brought an organization from zero to 150 people in 18 months. So massive growth in a complicated product, lots of financials behind that, growing it from zero to like a quarter of a billion dollars of reserves. So really strong organizations. And I did that three times. So the first time, the end of my career at Unum was a startup. Then I did another startup at Aetna, same type of thing, rapid growth. Um, so a huge blessing of being able to see rapid growth times in different cultures, which was very powerful. Uh, that again was zero to 150 people. And I did that one. I slowed that, was able to slow that one down a little bit. And I did that in four years. I left just shy of five years to go do a startup for Prudential. By the time I went now doing this third time with Prudential, I was able to set some rules of, hey, this is what I'm good at. This is what I like. And I was very clear when they hired me that, you know, I'll bring you to 75 people and then, you know, it's time to get me out. And it's sort of my bailiwick, my true happiness, right? That's what I'm happiest with. But, you know, you can only control so much. So I brought them to 75 and I just couldn't get out at 75. So I brought them to 150 people. And then I was like, that's it. You've got to get me out. I was fortunate to be able to set those guiding principles for myself and share those so strong in them to say, this is the way it is, that it helped build respect, I think, in my leadership and oh, definitely has helped my happiness. And so I was put into a strategic operations position just before the recession. And in that position, it was the first time that I actually could breathe. Doing startup operations, three of those in a row with massive growth while raising children. That was a lot. I was pretty tired. And so I had the opportunity to do the strategic operations. And I decided it was time to start taking care of myself. I had given enough to a family and career that I was neglecting myself. And that's when the health challenges began, all entwined with the recession. I had a foot surgery. I had to get my feet operated on because I had neglected them. You shared it with me beforehand. You have a congenital condition of both of your feet? Yeah, I had found out 
20 years before that I needed foot operations because my grandmother had bad feet. I had bad feet. Again, a hereditary problem. And I was starting to develop complications because I was ignoring my feet. And I knew I needed to get my feet done because I was not going to live in the pain that my grandmother did when I was a child. I remember her coming home and in the bathroom, her massaging her feet. And they just very deformed. And, you know, back in the day, they weren't able to wear sneakers like weekend. And they didn't have all the same therapy shoes that we have today. But in crying over her feet. And she would tell me, Manny, you've got to take care of your feet. So that was ingrained in me that I had to take care of these feet. So 2008, I had the foot surgery. And then that unleashed the hyperparathyroid that I did not know I had until the breast cancer diagnosis in 2013. You've just rattled off some major health issues. So you started off, you had the foot surgery, but that's when other things began to present themselves. So um, your parathyroidism, which I wrote about and people can read about on catchinghealth.com. I will include a link at some point, but is that an autoimmune disorder? It is an autoimmune. It's not really related to your thyroid. Um, men and women have parathyroids, and you typically have four of them. I had five, but really uh, created havoc in a nutshell. It creates slight, slight anxiousness, anxiety, and memory loss. It can create, and this is the difficulty in the diagnosis because it creates all different things in different people. It can create stomach issues, which was my issue. It can create kidney stones and calcium issues, which creates incredible bone pain. So now after understanding this disease that was in me, the pain that I was in to have the foot surgery was just so intense. It was everywhere in my body. And now it makes sense because my calcium was impacted. So um, the reason, the behind the scenes reason why I really left corporate is I was very ill with colitis and I was in the closet without a doubt. I really didn't come out of the closet with colitis until a few years ago, to be honest with you. When I published the book, I shared my story, right? How powerful it is, the more you help others through your journey, the more healing it is. So the colitis didn't show up until you'd had your surgery? It started to, when I had my babies, which were both C-sections, right? Invasive procedures. The colitis was diagnosed with my first baby and it got okay. worse with the second baby, but I was managing it, you know, with medication and incredible discipline and structure in my diet and exercise. I was keeping it fairly managed uh, quite well, actually, until that foot surgery. Then the colitis really started to take off and a recession hit fourth quarter. And I was given the opportunity. I had a choice. I could go back to frontline operations where I had the most impact on the bottom line, right? Because it was a recession. I, I had to be in a financial role where I was having a direct impact or take a package because my job was being eliminated because it, it didn't have a, it was strategic operations. It was sort of a fluffy VP role and you know, hindsight being 2020, when you're in a recession, that's how it was viewed. That's the real story. Down deep, I was concerned it was the stress of my career that might be creating this additional colitis challenge. But no, it, it wasn't. I was sick and I didn't know it. So I took the package. I figured if I can do this for large corporations, I could figure out how to start my own company. I had this crazy conversation at Christmas time with my mom about... Uh, 
longevity because I was telling her, oh, I'm going to live to 100 years old. She's like, wow, your ancestors lived to 103. So that's how I came up with 110, just when I needed to have a name for my company, because I knew whatever I started was going to change and transform, uh, especially knowing I was going to live to 100, 110. Here you are healing from foot surgery and the colitis gets worse. And then you discover that you have the hyperparathyroidism and you had surgery for that. But your brain is thinking about the business you're going to start and coming up with the name and, and having 110% click in. I mean, you do have an amazing way of approaching things, I think. Thank you. Did you heal from all those things or did they get better and then more things cropped up? So on a timeline of my health challenges, uh, 2008 was the first foot surgery. Uh, it's the recession. So stepped out of corporate because of the recession. It took me a year and a half to land on my feet with my own small insurance agency. And for a couple of years, still battling this crazy illness. I, I was picking up every like infection, every little thing. And my colitis was so bad. I remember thinking, well, if I'm going to live to 110, I better get these boobs checked. Cause I was going in to the doctors all the time for the colitis, but my mammogram was being, you know, time for that. Really, it was all about me thinking if I'm going to live to 110, I better get these boob checks. And sure enough, it was that mammogram that came back positive. And breast cancer actually saved my life because I was very clear in my mind. I was so ill with colitis that there's no way my body could handle radiation. And personally, I was flat at one point, again, tying everything to a bigger purpose. I thought maybe the reason why I got breast cancer to use my voice to tell men, hey, men, you can get this breast cancer too, because if I got it, you could get it. And that was my story for a good couple of years. I elected to get the mastectomy. And then with all the expansions and the surgeries for the elective procedure for reconstruction, my body just started breaking down. And it, it just didn't make sense. I was in acute pain. And my other girlfriends, breast cancer survivors who had chemo, I didn't have to do chemo. They would have these surgeries and they didn't have the same level of pain. And that's what made me question what's different. Why, why, why? And this is when I really have articulated the power of being your own CEO of your life, you know, and not having my health story drive my bus, not to be my primary division within my life. And as a CEO, I have a great board of directors over my health. So because of that way of thinking, I got a new doctor and that new doctor uncovered this, as you know, the interview of the hyperparathyroid. And when we took that out, which took a little bit to figure out, but when we figured that out, everything started to get better. Then because I didn't fix my right foot after the 2008 foot surgery, I had to get both feet because then now I was in pain with my back. I had to get both feet operated on in 2018. And then I had to get one more because there was a slight complication. Yeah, I'll be going on eight years cancer-free December 16th and my last illness of the small fiber neuropathy, which is burning all over my body is finally getting manageable. I'm great, great board of directors. I have a neurologist out of MassGen and he is just amazing. It was triggered about three years ago, somewhere along the process, not 
quite sure of the exact diagnosis. A neurologist thinks it's my autoimmune system attacking my nervous system. I have a hidden fear that it's my implants. And so doing the due diligence there. Uh, so what is small fiber neuropathy? Small fiber neuropathy for me is burning pain throughout my entire body. A lot of people get small fiber neuropathy in their feet and they're diabetic. Mine is not. I'm not a diabetic. It does happen to a very small percent of people who have small fiber neuropathy. It's finally getting manageable, but I live in daily pain. I live with, on a great day, it's always a level two. Now with the pain management treatment, I toggle between probably a two and a five. So I know what it's like to live with an invisible disability. And so many people do. I'm sorry that you have to go through that. It doesn't feel fair, but that's what life is like, isn't it? I believe you can't have true euphoria like I have if you don't live some of the pain that I have. And so understanding that when you're in the acute pain to understand that you will get through the other side of it and you're connected to a bigger purpose, that I feel that I live my life every day so differently. And these tools that you have, that you've used all your life, I mean, you have to use them over and over again to manage your own personal challenges. You've gotten through all these surgeries and these diagnoses. Your business is doing well. And yes. then you came to the point where you realized, I think somebody suggested to you, when are you going to write your book, Luann? And so you said, well, okay, now's the time. Exactly right. Along my leadership path in development and training, I was introduced to a couple of different books. And I would think, well, they sold a million copies. Man, I could write a book. It was just my intro head talk. And then when I went to start my own small insurance agency, I, I definitely was having a void of tra that transition from large corporation now to small business owner. Huge transition. I was very knowledgeable in the disability insurance arena for, for like 25 years, and now I'm in the PNC business. Um, not large organizations, very small, and had a huge void. And it's like, I, I've got a good team, good job. Why am I not happy? And so evaluating that, what was it? Well, I was missing having a direct impact on change in a larger organization. And people would stop in, they'd see my name on the road sign, and they'd come in and say, thank you, thank you for this, thank you for that. I'm like, what? And it made me really think about why they were thanking me. Why would they come in and thank me for things that I had said years ago? And that's when I started to now vocalize I should write a book. So before it was always internal head talk, but now I would spout out to my little small business team, and say, you know what? I'm going to write a book. I should write a book. Oh, I should write a book. Oh, I should call it Louisianisms. Oh, I should write a book. <laughs> and then my office manager, Flora at the time Dutton, and now proud to say she's Flora Bailey, she held me accountable. And she's like, Luann, when are you going to write that book? That was the moment. So I committed. I put up a white sheet and started writing down ideas for this book. And again, it started as Louisianisms. And then I started to get a board of directors. And then I started to think, where are my weaknesses? Well, my first weakness is I don't read. <laughs> my second weakness is I don't, I'm not a good writer. So I hired a ghostwriter and I dictated, I dictated 80% of the book. By the end, I became a pretty good writer. And my ghostwriter was phenomenal, uh, Noelle Castle, Castle Media. So she was excellent. We had a wonderful partnership for that. And you came up with the 110 philosophy. 
And I have to say, this caught me off guard at first. I had to get used to it. But you don't start at page one. You start at page 110 and you end on one. Mm -hmm. And you publish the book on January 10, 110, 2020. And there's significance with the 2020, which is what? Well, the book is all about using your past experience, so your hindsight, to make your future very bright. So I thought, what better time to release a book because I needed a goal. I was going on year five and I needed a goal to get this book done. And when I figured that 110-2020 was a Friday, then I thought, well, 1.10 p.m. for philosophy moment because nobody knows p.m. means post-moon. So it all fell into place and that was it. That was the deadline for the book was going to be one ten twenty. Okay, so we've learned a lot about your philosophy on life. And that's kind of what you wrote about in your book, your philosophy on life and how to be happy, how to be successful. But can you give us some of those Luanisms? What is the meat of your book? How do you try to inspire the readers to be happy and to manage their lives? And I know that your primary audience is professional people, but this is for anybody. You can be successful professionally and personally. So it's not just for business people. No, not at all. In fact, the book is more focused on the individual. And I don't position the business component of it towards the very end of the book. And you're right, it does start on page 110 and counts down. I did that for four different reasons. Three of them were right in the book. But one of the primary principles was to make sure just what you said, that you cut you off guard. And that is exactly what I wanted to do. I wanted people to think differently about as they turn the pages that, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, what's going on here? To, to stop and think about what they're absorbing. It's very difficult, I think, and the feedback is to read it all in one sitting. It takes about, ironically, about 110 minutes, but in about three or four different times because there is a lot to it. So it's based off of five principles. These are my five principles, and I've been challenged on the principles as well. And the order, I'm very clear, the order of the principles are important to me. And believe me, it took me six years and my husband was a great editor. I put it in front of a lot of people because remember, I'm not a reader or a writer. So it was really important for me to get feedback about how I was putting this together. But I was very clear. I wanted a book that was only 110 pages because if it was any more than that, I wouldn't read it. And I wanted to grab the audience of somebody who had a short attention span like myself. So it's not that complicated how to be happy. It's not. If you could set your vision at five years old, okay, and stick with it your whole entire life, setting your vision for your life can't be that difficult. <laughs> so it's about having a vision of where you're going. So 110 is about having a vision and being engaged 110% and then having structure and discipline. So you have the five principles. And then in the book, there's about nine tools that help you stick to those guiding principles within your own life. And when you know, when you know your guiding principles, you can make decisions that have a profound impact on you immediately. You know, it's just like going to the gym or learning a new skill. It, it takes you time. I've been thinking this way for forever, right? So it's very easy for me. I just automatically think this way. One of the profound moments when I was working with a ghostwriter that she just couldn't believe this is the way I thought is the phone rang. And it was my son and he was calling and he was in college. And first time, because I was meeting with her, I didn't pick up the phone. Second time, picked up the phone. 
we have a rule within the family, two times is an emergency. doesn't matter what I'm doing, that that is the priority. So it's knowing that family is way more important than career. I know many people who wouldn't walk out of a meeting if they were delivering a presentation in front of 300 people. They wouldn't walk out of a meeting for a phone call, but I would be no doubt about it. I don't know if they'd even think about it. So it's just being that very clear in your mind about making decisions. So being disciplined, this book helps give you some ideas about principle because I share my guiding principles and then tools to support it. I was going to ask you about those guiding principles. So you give hints on how you can figure out what yours are, but your guiding principles are not going to be the same necessarily as my guiding principles. Family comes first is one of your guiding principles. Correct. Okay, help me with a guiding principle. So I have a vision of myself living to be 100 and with my brain intact. Mm -hmm. So I've been exploring, researching all the different ways that I can keep my brain healthy, which includes getting plenty of exercise. But sometimes that's challenging because, you know, that means for me going to the gym going to a yoga class and going swimming with my sister. Well, that's a lot of commitment. And so it's easy to wake up on a rainy morning like I did yesterday and look out the window and think, I just can't get out of bed. And so I didn't. There's my lack of discipline. How would you have handled the situation? Would you have gotten yourself out of bed or would you have given yourself permission to stay in that particular morning maybe? Well, let me be clear. I am no saint and I am not perfect. So it's funny. I find myself reading the book every now and then saying, oh, yeah, that's right. It's a refresher. But there's the power of goals. So that's when goals are important. So the Try for a Cure for me has been an amazing goal because it keeps me disciplined and structured because I know no matter what, that that date is coming every year. I'm going on year eight. Wow. And so the power of setting an achievable goal, there's a difference between that vision and goals. Goals are attainable. I believe in the importance and the power in an organization to have a goal and then a stretch goal. So I do the same with my personal life. I have goals and then I have stretch goals. And so I just did that for the Try for the Cure. I think Try for a Cure is in like 220 days. Because I'm getting healthier, I can get sloppier. It's funny how my health has been a primary reason of my discipline and structure because I've learned I have significant consequences. Sometimes I think my life is easier because I do have the health challenges. The colitis has made me incredibly disciplined. You know, I can't drink milk. You know, I can't have any dairy in my diet. And I have huge consequences if I if I do. So it's much harder for me to eat the cookie. So it's easier for me to say, don't eat the cookie. Because for me, I have a consequence if I eat that cookie. But it goes back to the goal. I just set a goal for, because I'm getting a little sloppy going into the shorter time of the year. You're right. The weather, it makes it much more difficult. So my goal, my realistic goal, exercise 10 minutes, three times a week, very achievable, very achievable. My stretch goal is to do 30 minutes up to no more than six times a week, right? So, so I follow it right in between and writing it down. Very powerful to write down your goal. So I have it written down. I track it. I really dislike numbers. I would always say, oh, suck at numbers, but I really don't. The power around numbers is it makes you do things when you don't want to do it. So by having a mental goal and having that written down makes you do it when you don't want to do it. So that's that would be my suggestion to you is to write down whatever your goal is, have a, a stretch goal and a realistic goal, 
and then don't think about it. Just do it. There's a great book out there, The Five Second Rule, I think it's called, but it's basically the concept of the power of counting down. Uh, five, four, three, two, one. Very powerful. So this is a great little trick that's taught in her book. Tonight, when you go to bed, lay out what you want to wear for your workout. Okay. That's in my book about how powerful it is to make all those decisions the night before. So you don't think about it in the morning. In the morning, you already know you made the decision last night. You're, you were going to do it, right? So count down. As soon as that alarm goes off, just count down five, four, three, two, one, and get out of bed. Just do it. Don't think about it. People overthink things. Nike's commercial. I love that. Just do it. It's so powerful. Okay. Because tomorrow's my day to get up and go to the gym. I'll report back. Okay. I'm having such a good time, but we're going to have to wrap up. And I do want to ask you on the cover of your book, you've got a turtle. What does the turtle represent that you've got to take little baby steps and not worry about rushing through everything? The powerful thing about that turtle, this is the fun story um, in that you don't see anything in the book uh, really about the turtle except one page because it was an afterthought. This book did sort of evolve. I'm sitting with the publisher and she's like, Luann, well, now you got to think about what you want on the cover. And we were sitting at a diner and she goes, what resonates? You know, what would you like it to look like? And I knew immediately what I wanted on it, but I didn't quite dare tell her because I wanted her to publish the book. I literally sat there for about five minutes and I got teary-eyed. She's like, what is it? I said, well, I want to put a turtle. I want to put a turtle on it because my nickname as a child was turtle. It wasn't because I was slow. It was because I ate slow. And so my dad named me turtle. And turtles have always resonated in my life, throughout my life, which isn't in the book. I just resonated with turtles because they're sort of slow and goofy and awkward and they live a long time and I just thought the picture on the cover I wanted I had a big vision I wanted my book to go worldwide I wanted to help people all around the world with this turtle and I figured you know what everybody can relate to a turtle everybody loves turtles so I just thought it was a great metaphor for what I was trying to do to help others through my journey and there is this old saying slow and steady wins the race that's right well, before we say goodbye, do you have any new goals that you have set for yourself that you'd like to share with us? My dream is to be an inspirational speaker. That's my dream. I'm a little nervous of it, to be honest, because I'm not a great public speaker. I don't have a lot of experience except in my corporate life. So my goal to help push me forward, very realistic, 2022 was all about doing a monthly blog and each month I shared one tool because even if no one ever read any of the blogs, at the end of the year, I would walk away with this set of tools sitting on the shelf within my website to be able to share with small businesses to say, okay, here are the tools, which one would you like me to speak to? So now that I look back and reflect, that's what this time of the year is all about and planning for 2023. I want to make sure I'm doing at least one inspirational presentation because all I need is one to gain my confidence to uh, push me forward. Pretty simple on the 110 philosophy side. I think you'll be a wonderful inspirational speaker. I've enjoyed talking with you very much. I find you inspirational and also funny and also very real. I've met you before, I've interviewed you before, but not in this context and not for this length of time. And I've enjoyed it thoroughly. So I think you're going to be a winner. Vote of confidence. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. I hope you have a great day and no more illnesses. Exactly. Exactly. 
That brings us to the end of this episode of the Catching Your Memories podcast. Many thanks to Luann Cameron for sharing her story with us. If you would like to read a transcript of our conversation or leave a comment, go to catchingyourmemories.com slash podcast. You'll find more information about Luann's 110 Philosophy and how to buy her book at 110philosophy.com. That's 110philosophy.com. Be sure to come back next month for another episode of Catching Your Memories. And if you have stories or memories you would rather not share in a podcast but would like to preserve for yourself or your family, I also record personal interviews. You can learn more about that at catchingyourmemories.com or send me an email, diane at dianeatwood.com. This podcast was created, produced, recorded, and edited by me, Diane Atwood. Catching Your Memories the interview of a lifetime.